Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Ambassador Martha Barcena, Mexican Ambassador of the United States. Originally from Veracruz, Ambassador Barcena joined the Mexican Foreign Service in 1979 and has since served in various capacities, including Ambassador to Denmark, Turkey, Georgia, and Azerbaijan, among other countries. She presented her credentials to President Trump in January of 2019, becoming the first female ambassador of Mexico to the United States. Ambassador Barcena, it's an honor to have you on my podcast. Thank you for joining us today. No, thanks to CSIS and to you, Danny, for this meeting today and for this conversation. I think it's a, a very important one in these challenging times. And I just want to reiterate how much we respect the activities of CSIS and all the studies and what you contribute to the bilateral relationship. Thank you, Ambassador. It's es un lujo to have such a high caliber ambassador representing your very fine country. I love Mexico. My wife and I love going to Mexico. Uh, we have a shared future in the Western Hemisphere. This is one of our most important relationships and we got to get it right. So thank you for representing your country and thank you for being here. It's great. And we'll do everything we can to help. Could you tell us, Ambassador, a little bit, how did you get started in the Foreign Service? Well, you know, I was dreaming of being a classical ballerina. And I danced since I was six years old until I was 18. And then I had a, a lot of problems with one of my knees. So I couldn't continue with my plans of going to audition in Europe to get into the Royal Ballet School. So I I went into university and I wanted to study international relations, but for different reasons, there were no openings to study international relations at UNAM because the calendars were different. And at the private universities, there were the, the career of international relations was not really available at that time. So I joined the Jesuit University in Mexico, the Iberoamericana. I studied communications, but there was my passion on journalism, on international affairs and on uh, communications research, you know, polling and all these issues. And I always wrote essays about international relations, like, for example, the debates on UNESCO on freedom of expression and this. So one year, the, the Mexican diplomatic school, instead of calling for an open exam for anyone that could go and present the exam, they wrote a letter to the universities asking for the best students to join the diplomatic academy. And I was a good student, so my director of the communications department said, you should go, you are very interested in these issues. And they presented to me as, as a candidate of the university for entering the diplomatic academy. And having studied uh, communications in which you learn a lot of everything and nothing deeply, in a general culture exam, I got the first place because I could answer from physics and mathematics. I was doing probability and statistics in, in the career on, on literature, history, geography, 
I was very young. I was 21 years old. Once I was in the Diplomatic Academy, I was uh, hooked for the rest of my life, you know, in international relations and with the pride of serving a fantastic country, an incredible country that it's my country, Mexico. Great. Thank you so much. You presented your credentials in January 2019. What are the priorities of President AMLO's government in the Mexico-U.S. bilateral relationship? I think, uh, of course, the priorities evolve in time, but I would synthesize the priorities in three areas. First, get USMCA finished and entering into force. And now we are getting that on the 1st of July. So the first year, most of my activities were concentrated in doing lobbying in Congress, in interacting with USTR, although uh, the technical negotiations were taken by Undersecretary Siade. But, you know, having dialogue with them, with the Department of State, with the Department of Commerce, with the White House. But basically, my job was to concentrate on Congress to lobby in favor of USMCA and to get it approved. And as you know, it is a treaty that has got the agreement that has got more votes in favor than any except the one that you have with Israel. The second is to convey the message that to tackle corruption and inequality in Mexico are two basic fundamentals to be able to confront the security challenges that we have internally and bilaterally and to fight organized crime. So we've been concentrating uh, with a lot of cooperation with the Department of Treasury in uh, freezing accounts of organized crime having more exchange of uh, intelligence information. And in this way, we have been fighting basically corruption. So the main objective is to cut the financial flow to organized crime. And of course, we have been also working on this fighting corruption uh, within a high-level working group on security that has different subgroups. Of course, in those, in that high level working group on security, we have also been tackling issues of drug uh, trafficking, fight against drug trafficking, fight against arms trafficking, ball cash trafficking, and other uh, main areas. The third issue that I, I would say that is key is to put more emphasis on economic, social, and development cooperation. That means President López Obrador is convinced that if we want to tackle the issue of migration, that for Mexico has always been an economic and social phenomenon with aspects of security, but for Mexico, migration has never been an issue of national security, but of economic and social phenomena. But if we want to tackle migration, we have to address the root causes of migration, both in Mexico and in Central America. So what do we need to do to address the root causes of migration? We need Mexico and the U.S. to cooperate together to invest more in Central America, in the South and Southeast part of Mexico, and to integrate these parts of Mexico, South and Southeast, that did not benefit so much from NAFTA, and that we expect that they will benefit from USMCA with national politics, and the South and Southeast of Mexico with Central America, having a new area of development of, in the continent. So that is the third priority. We are still paying attention to very critical issues 
which is border security, border cooperation, sanitation projects at the border, you know, pollution problems at the border, natural resources. We are dealing with uh, educational cooperation, which is key, cultural cooperation. But I would synthesize what characterizes President López Obrador is let's tackle corruption and inequality as the basis to fight organized crime and to guarantee security. Let's get USMCA into force and let's have an increased economical, social and development cooperation focused on the Southeast and Central America. Ambassador, that's amazing. We've done a lot of work on the issue of forced migration. We did a big task force on this in 2018. I did a big report in 2016 and then a follow-up in 2019 on the issue of Central America. And I, I have three children and some of my kids looked like some of those kids getting on those trains. And I thought to myself, what would possess me to put my child on one of those trains? And it seemed to me there were a lot of reasons. So I went down to Central America and spent, I spent a year looking at this and interviewed a hundred people. My big takeaway ambassador is the magic number is 8,000. When a country hits $8,000 per capita, people stop migrating. Now, as you know, Ambassador, there's net migration from Mexico. That's happened since 2005, partially because of your demography, but also because Mexico is a a middle-income country. It hit $8,000 per capita in 2005 and has continued to grow. And so most of the folks that cross, as you well know, Ambassador, most of the folks are from the Northern Triangle. And if there are folks from Mexico, it's from from that area that you were describing. So I agree with you. I think that the solution is, in my mind, development and security and diplomacy and, and having capable governance. So I share President Amlo's view about that this long-term solution is that. I agree. And I think I think it was former President Peña Nieto that said in a call, think about an, building an invisible wall. I don't want to, you know, I think that was the, the visible wall was development. It's not exactly a great term and I'm not exactly sure that's how I would describe it. But the idea is that's not enough. Security does matter. Lack of voice or sense of being invested in a society matters. So if you have crappy governance or you have you feel a personal sense of danger of your child's going to be recruited into a gang, that's an incentive to leave. But $8,000 per capita. So I agree that this issue of development. So I think it's very, very interesting. I congratulate the Mexican government on the political success in the U.S. Congress of getting that those kind of votes. I think it speaks to the, the understanding in both sides of the aisle of the importance of the U.S.-Mexico relationship and importance of making the North American trading zone work and make sure that it's yes. a success, that we've had, we had 20 plus years, I think largely of a success. I think there, we, we've been beneficiaries. Mexico's been a beneficiary. Canada's been a beneficiary. So I think it's great. So I think it's wonderful. We're going to we're going to follow through and make all of that happen. I think that this is a, a very interesting and rich agenda where we should have a, a lot of it sounds like we have a lot of shared interests. So I, I, I hope and expect you have a lot of open doors and it's a not a totally terrible assignment as opposed to, I don't know, some other place that could be more of a headache. I'm sure this is challenging, but at the same time, I would think we have given our shared interest in that agenda. It shouldn't be. It it sounds like I bet it's very interesting. Yes, I totally agree. And I think we can build and we are building quite an interesting agenda. We've been working with uh, what was former OPIC and now DFIC on investments, private investments in the southern southeast of Mexico. 
But we also have been working in strengthening the legal system in Mexico and strengthening also the training of the new Guardia Nacional, the National Guard, which is a military police that was established in this government. So I think we are really advancing in this agenda. And I'm sure that in the future, the U.S. will discuss and adopt a reform of the immigration laws of the U.S. because that reform is long overdue. And my hope is that when the debate opens, the points of view of Mexico about how we conceive these solutions to migration and the interaction on migration will be listened. Of course, we are very respectful that the decisions will be taken in Congress and we don't intervene in the decisions of Congress. But we want to have a rational debate based on facts and realities. And that facts and realities are the complementarity that we have had for many years of the demographic profiles of Mexico and the U.S. and also the complementarity of the labor markets, which we have seen also in this crisis because many of the so-called essential workers in the U.S. are migrants. And many of them are from Mexico, and also a considerable percentage of them are undocumented, both in the fields and in the meatpacking plants. And they have been in the first line. And also we have had almost 30,000 uh, dreamers in the first line of the sanitary services in the U.S., doctors, nurses, etc., etc. I can't disagree with you, Ambassador. I would like to ask you about covid my colleagues and I have had about 100 or 200 conversations in the last three months talking to people all over the world. And my opening question to folks is, how is COVID disrupting your world? And so could you talk a little bit about how is COVID impacting Mexico? Well, the first thing I want to underline is that the pandemic started in Mexico later than in the U.S. That is very important to have in mind because when the curve was already rising in the U.S., there were almost no cases in Mexico. The first cases in Mexico came from abroad and about 30 to 40 percent of them were people arriving from the United States to Mexico. And then we enter, let's say, the stage three in which it was the stage in which the contagions were already taking place within the community in Mexico until April. So we had a development that it's very much behind the U.S. in terms of timing. Once this contagion, community contagion, started to spread, the curve of contagions have risen very rapidly. The objective of the government of Mexico was trying to contain that curve to have, instead of a peak, like a camel humpback curve so that the hospitals will not be saturated and that we would be able to attend the people. Until now, we have managed. That doesn't mean that the things are right. I mean, we have had a lot of need of PPE, of personal protection equipment, of ventilators. We have gone through the same processes that the U.S. went first and other countries. In a sense, we were prepared because we knew what was going to happen. In a sense, we were not prepared enough because I think not even now the doctors understand this virus and what are the consequences. So, for example, one issue is that the Mexican government decided to apply a system that is called Sentinel Surveillance System. That was the system that has been used by the WHO many years. 
The Sentinel system bases its estimates on data from a select network of reliable medical facilities, rather than on passive reports of deaths and hospitalizations, which do not capture most outpatient cases. So what happens that the numbers of people that have been identified with COVID in Mexico is still low, and the numbers of deaths, it's growing exponentially. Now we have 12,000 deaths. So there is a debate now in Mexico internally if we should switch from this sentinel surveillance system to a more extended mechanism with more test kits. And that is one of the areas in which some states in Mexico are increasing its testing. As in the U.S., we are a federal system, so the, the central government, the federal government gives issues certain guidelines But then each state goes and can take additional steps. So from last 31st of May, we enter a phase of traffic-like model implementation, but uh, for a reopening strategy. And we have four colors in this traffic. If we have red, that means that only essential activities can take place. If You have orange, then essential and some non-essential activities of reduced level are allowed, but maximum care for vulnerable workers. Then yellow, which is minor restrictions for open public spaces, and low green is resumption of all full economic activity. Right now, most of the country is in red or in orange, and the hottest spots Like in the U.S. was New York, the hottest spots in Mexico are Mexico City, Baja California, the state of Mexico, and certain parts of Quintana Roo. But Quintana Roo is going down quite rapidly. So we are now in this phase in which we are also aligning our economic reopening with economic reopening on the U.S., aligning the essential sectors and allowing, for example, sectors as the automotive and aerospace to maintain the value chains that are so fundamental for North America. On the other hand, is how COVID-19 has been affecting Mexicans in the U.S. And it's one of the communities that has been more affected. According to the information compiled by the Mexican consulates, almost 1,300 Mexican citizens have died as a consequence of COVID. With the higher cases in New York, more than 700, California, Illinois, New Jersey, and even Maryland. So that has been a huge challenge because most of Mexicans want, the family wants to have their corpses repatriated. And that has not been possible with the sanitary measures. We have been encouraging them to cremate. But you know, you're Catholic, I'm Catholic. You know, sometimes even if the Catholic Church allows it, It's difficult to convince for cultural reasons some, some of the families. And then uh, our community has also been badly affected by the virus because there was a comorbidity. I mean, they had diabetes, they had uh, obesity, overweight, high cholesterol, and many of them didn't have access to health insurance. So I think this crisis has been an eye-opener also for us and for all the Latinx communities or Hispanic communities and organizations to see how are we going to improve the health of our communities and how are we going to tackle all these challenges. And of course, many of them lost their jobs because they were in the hotel industry, in the restaurant industry, in the service industry, 
And uh, so we have concentrated our efforts in guaranteeing them access to food through food banks to a special collect. I mean, we have to, we have done collect in all the big cities with the help of many American companies that are based in Mexico. But we see a growing problem in the future in the area of housing, of paying rents and paying mortgage, which is nothing different from the problems that everybody's having. But we are concentrating in this, in this, this uh, in the attention on these issues. Ambassador, one last question. Mexico is the first country in the region to have a feminist foreign policy. What does that mean in concrete terms, Ambassador? Well, one example is that for the first time in many years, we have the first female ambassador in Washington. Then the heads of the some of the most important consulates of Mexico in the U.S., like the general consulate in Chicago is a woman, general consulate in Los Angeles is a woman, general consulate in uh, Houston, in San Jose, in Sacramento, in San Francisco. So what is the foreign policy? Having more women in important decision-making posts. The cabinet of President López Obrador is comprised by women in in terms of numbers. Half of them are women. So it's 50-50. And for the first time in history, the parity between men and women in the two chambers of the Mexican Congress is 50-50. And what do we do that? Then for us, it's a priority to include the gender issues in all the multilateral agenda that we were talking at the beginning. And we are also trying to include the gender perspective in our bilateral agenda. For example, taking a special care of the protection of women now in COVID and lockdown against domestic violence, against discrimination, we pay special attention to the in issues of migration in detention centers and this that the gender perspective is taken into account. We are trying to work very hard on the issue of traffic of people because women are very much affected. And we are also studying how women are affected by the COVID crisis, not only because they get sick, but also because a lot of them were workers that now are at home and they have to do homeschooling and work. So it's again, la doble carga de trabajo. They have a double charge of of work. So I think this is the basic issue of the feminist policies is how to take into account the gender perspective in the decision-making process and how to include the gender perspective in the agendas that we are building together. Ambassador, this is the first of many conversations. Ambassador, thank you very much. No, I thank you. We're going to have you over to CSIS. We're going to do a lot more on Mexico, and we look forward to partnering with you. Thank you, Ambassador. I look forward to continue the conversation and the partnership. Thanks to all of you, and hope to see you soon. Hasta la vista. Hasta la vista. Gracias, Embajadora. Hasta luego. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 